genuine question now. Go ahead. When was the last time you experienced decent, not even like exceptional, just decent customer service? Oh, long time ago. I mean, there's no secret formula for it yet. What we do know is that most companies seem to be pretty bad at it. But not you, my friend, not you, listener. Oh, no. You can create an amazing customer service experience when you use the brand new service hub from HubSpot. Yep, this all-new service hub from HubSpot brings customer service and support together in one simple but powerful platform so you can deliver the best experience possible. And of course, it's powered by AI, not Al, AI, meaning your team can automate those tedious tickets from people who've clearly not read your frequently asked questions. Pain in the backside, aren't they? Oh, and by the way, organizations using HubSpot Service Hub are resolving tickets 13 times faster, helping them to close 42% more tickets per day. That means increasing retention by more than 80%. Thank you, people at HubSpot who, who did the maths on that one, because I wouldn't be able to. I love a bit of data. Did you also know, Al, that it consolidates your entire internal knowledge base into one place? So no matter who is working on support, they'll have the answers at their fingertips. I did know that because I wrote that for you. Well, there you have it. Stand out from the crowd and migrate to HubSpot Service Hub today. Visit HubSpot.com slash service and learn how this all-new solution can help you deliver for your customers. I, I don't think he's got a plan at the moment, I think, and I don't understand what he's trying to do. Hello and welcome back to the Truth, Lies and Workplace Culture podcast. My name's Leanne, I'm a business psychologist. And my name's Al and I'm a business owner. And welcome back. Hello. Hi. <laughs> if this is your first time or maybe your second time of listening, then welcome. Uh, tell us what you're doing. Are you are you driving? Are you at work? Are you skiving? Um, that's probably quite a UK-centric term, that skiving, isn't it? To skive. <laughs> to, to, to coast. To, yes, to bunk Be distracted. Work. Talking of being distracted, then today we are talking about Leah Watt. We are talking about the truth behind the Twitter layoffs and, let's be honest, the shit show that it currently is. <laughs> I'll be honest, we have delayed recording this episode because every day we wake up and there is more in the media. Elon Musk has made yet another move. So as of... This episode release date, the 15th of November 2022, we're as up to date as we possibly can be. Um, but yeah, wow, we're going to explore what happened, why it happened, what you can learn from it. And and yeah, speak to some experts as well, because Al and I can't possibly unpick this on our own. Definitely not. So just as a quick refresher then, so you must be living under a rock if you don't know that Elon acquired Twitter, the publicly traded company, now private, on October the 27th. I'm going to go through the full timeline in a second. But the fallout has been quite massive, really. Reportedly, 50% of the staff were up to 50% of the staff have been fired. Large advertisers are disappearing. Users, I mean, if you've been on Twitter recently, you know that there's people are not happy about all this. So our main question we're asking is, did Elon handle the layoffs the right way? And what is the truth and what are the lies behind this story? So this is basically going to be three parts. We're going to talk about what it means for the business of Twitter. Then we're going to be talking about what the impact these layoffs have on both outgoing employees and the ones who remain. That's firmly Leanne's wheelhouse. And finally, we're going to be talking about what does it mean for the brand and the users. Now, we have some exclusive interviews and we'll talk in a minute about the experts who are going to join us. But firstly, let's just remind ourselves of the timeline. So it seems a long time ago, but it was April the 4th when Elon announced that he owned 9% of Twitter. And then a couple of days later, on the 11th, he, he was invited to join the board of directors, but declined. And then on the 14th, he offered $44 billion, that's B billion dollars for Twitter, which was blocked by the board. So fast forward another 10 days, middle of April, end of April, the 25th, the board finally accepts the offer. But then this is like a soap opera, isn't it? But then June the 6th, um, Elon says, I'm not going to go through with it because of these bots, these Twitter spam bots. We don't know whether that was just his way to try and get out of it or whether he was doing some kind of clever deal negotiation. And then finally, on July the 8th, he backs out and Twitter sues them. So 
Fast forward to October the 4th, and apparently to avoid the lawsuit, but again, we don't know. He's a clever lad. Maybe he, he had an idea that this was all going to happen all along, but he agrees to proceed with the acquisition. And on the 27th, he completes the deal. So this is October the 27th. We're, only, we're not even a month away, a month in the past. He completes the deal and fires the CEO, uh, which is Parag Agrawal, I think is, I think you say, I've only ever seen his surname written down, so I don't know how you say it. And then on November the 4th, he fires up to 50% of the workforce. And November the 5th, lawsuits start against him. And this is where the advertisers, big, big advertisers like Audi and General Motors are apparently um, pausing their ads and leaving the platform. And then just to mix it all up, about five days ago on the 10th, Elon says bankruptcy isn't out of the question. So that's a lot to take in. So we're going to be joined by three experts to talk about this. The first one is Stephen Waddington. Stephen is a visiting professor of PR for Newcastle University in the UK. He's also a non-executive director for a number of PR agencies, and he's the past president of the UK-based Chartered Institute of Public Relations. So he's going to be talking very much in terms of PR. Then we've got Alan Krishnakuma, who is a fintech influencer. He's a top 100 social leader and the top 100 Asian in UK tech. He's graduated from the University of Oxford, and he's also got a book called Restartup, which is the Founder's Guide to Crisis Navigation. And the final guest we've got. Well, if that isn't enough for you, I didn't I didn't feel able to carry this psychology flag on my own. So a wonderful woman called Dr. Candice Schaefer um, is joining us as well. She is a board certified licensed clinical psychologist. You thought I was clever. Um, <laughs> yeah, she's incredible. Um, she's a corporate mental health and well-being strategist. She's an international speaker and thought leader. And if that wasn't enough, between 2019 and 2022, Two, she was the global head of employee wellness at Drumroll. I can't do a drumroll. Twitter. That's it. So we've got from the horse's mouth here, the global head of employee wellness at Twitter. So as this is very much a people thing, because we are going to talk a bit about the business and the brand, but the, the whole core story is the people. So Leanne, do you want to give us the idea or the context of how it all fits in in terms of people? Yes. And I think the first thing we need to try and do is, is try and put the recent layoffs in the tech space into some type of context. So what we know, Twitter have laid off 50% of employees. So that's 3,700 people. Stripe, as well recently, have let go 14% of employees. That's about 1,000. Lyft, 13% of employees. That's about 680. And then Meta, Literally, as we were interviewing some of our experts for the podcast, they announced that they are letting go 13% of their employees, which is a massive 11,000 people. If you don't have a calculator handy, I've done that maths for you. We're looking at a total of 16,380 people, give or take. A massive amount of people. To try and quantify this... 16,000 people is more than 19 Airbus A380s. They're the double-decker ones who like go around the world, the fancy ones. School buses, 340. The Hollywood Bowl holds 17,500 people. So we've almost filled it. If you're from Canada, we know we have some listeners in Canada. Welcome. Uh, The Canada Life Centre, which is home to the National Hockey League's Winnipeg Jets, um, actually holds 16,345. So we've, we've overfilled it. So the tricky thing is, from a psychological perspective, it's really hard for us to understand these types of numbers in terms of actual people, let alone empathise with them. Basically, our our feeling system can't count. That's the simplest way of putting it. There's an amazing psychologist called Professor Paul Slovic. Um, He actually calls this the deadly arithmetic of compassion. Um, and he basically says that, I mean, he actually uses a, a, a phrase from um, Joseph Stalin, which Didn't might think be we'd be quoting him on our podcast. I know. This is <laughs> such <laughs> diversity we have. Um, but yeah, Stalin reportedly said, one man's death is a tragedy, a million deaths is a statistic. I think that's really a, a really accurate reflection of the psychology that is going on. Statistics of mass impact simply don't move us or... or pushes to act in a way that they should. I'll leave the uh, the link to um, Professor Slovic's research in the show notes. It's very interesting. But the fact is we've got a lot to get on with, so I won't go into any more detail. The point is 
this isn't clickbait. This is a human story, as hard as it is for us to understand. So to help us, let's hear from our first guest, Dr. Candice Schaefer. I uh, held a, a Twitter uh, space uh, the day that um, they announced that they were going to have the layoffs. And um, speaking of this kind of peer support group, I said, you know, one last time, Tweeps, I want to do a listening circle and I'm just going to invite everybody on. And we had one employee that was like crying. She has, you know, a two month old son. She's the primary breadwinner in the family. And she doesn't know what she's going to do. As much as it is a human story, we have to remember, and this is what some of the users don't seem to understand, is that Twitter is a business. And it's now a privately held business. I've seen tweets this morning with someone who'd got 94 followers, no profile picture, tweeting at Elon Musk saying, I'm going to be leaving now. I'm not paying for free speech. And I'm like, well, that's kind of, I suppose, what Elon wants is the people who are never going to pay to just basically disappear. So we have to remember, it's a privately held business. And there's a really famous saying, which I only found out today, it was a guy called Milton Friedman, who said, the business of business is to do business. So if Twitter isn't profitable and if it does go to bankruptcy like Elon threatens then nobody's going to have any jobs. So we asked our experts a simple question. We said do you think that Twitter and Stripe which was the other guys that, that let people go and we'll talk more about Stripe in a second do you think they were simply overstaffed and this is what Alan thought. Uh, I think uh, Patrick uh, Patrick Collison the, the CEO of Stripe himself admitted that they had overhired um, through the pandemic and uh, and now that they're not seeing the same kind of growth in terms of revenues uh, and revenue opportunities, they are having to uh, let go of a few people. Then we asked the same question to Stephen Waddington, the PR expert. And let's just see what he thinks. You know, I've been a Twitter user for 15 years. I was trying to think how, how long. Um, and the company has never really found a viable business model. Mm. Um, so it's hard to say in that context whether it was overstaffed or not. Certainly, if you compare the ratios of employees, and this is this is what Wall Street looks at, if you compare the ratio of employees to revenue or profit, then yes, it was it, it was overstaffed. So aside from the people who jump on the bandwagon of, of outrage, people who just want to be outraged by something, most people agree that the layoffs were inevitable. But we, we're wondering, why have they all seemed to have happened this month? Why have they happened now? We asked Alan what his thoughts were. What we're seeing today is a pivot by a lot of tech giants from, or tech firms from pure growth-focused approach to profitability. And that is a good thing. And, and that is what crisis uh, does to entrepreneurs and founders and uh, boards, which is let's focus on sustaining um, or sustainable growth. Um, rather than just mindless growth, uh, just pumping numbers. Um, that that could work in a bull market where, where you have to keep churning out numbers of um, numbers of people you've acquired, numbers of daily active users and unit economics that as we call or call that. But in crisis, it is all about do you have enough cash? From a decision perspective, it's got to be very data driven, very analytical. However, in terms of how they're going about executing. Is, is perhaps the more important thing in times like these. I asked the same question to Stephen. It was on the it was on on the way to to create a, a sustainable business model. I think the challenge is lack of management focus. So you had a period of time, um, a really important period of time actually. That that um, period through COVID uh, and emergence from from COVID, where it had a part time CEO. So yeah. Dorsey was was working part time, and that only got corrected about six months or so ago. And you know, with an organisation by its nature of the, of the size and scale of Twitter, you know, you cannot have you can't have part time management. Um, mm. it, it's an absolutely full time job. And in fact, we even asked the psychologist and the person who was the head of wellness at Twitter whether whether the layoffs needed to happen. It's okay if you're going to have layoffs. But there's an, there's a way to approach it that recognizes people's humanity and what they have going on in their lives and being considerate. So it does seem like the big tech players are all nursing wounds this month because I mean, it was only last week, I think, Amazon became the first public company to lose a trillion dollars in market cap. Oh, that makes the eyes water, doesn't it? 
flipping it. I thought I had money troubles. <laughs> it makes my recent loss on Bitcoin. It puts it into perspective, I think. And Netflix is, is similarly, it seems like it's on the ropes. So layoffs from Stripe and Facebook are hitting. So we ask this important question. Do we think that the tech bubble is bursting? This is what Alan thinks. So I wouldn't call it a tech bubble bursting. It is just a correction. As interest rates go up, the valuation models uh, that have interest rates as, as the denominator are all going to kind of show a smaller number in terms of valuations, which means a correction in share price. So that is a that is a natural um, cycle. And as soon as you hear that the Fed is starting to pivot, you're going to see um, kind of the market going back again. So it is a it is it is it is not new. It is a very um, very well understood and known cycle. It is just about how much is the Fed willing to push the market down before we, we start seeing a recovery? So we're going to see the recovery very soon. So I wouldn't call it a bubble, um, but it is about how we go about then reacting to the bubble. Okay, so if we know it's going to be harder, this whole economic environment is potentially harder on the tech community, we have to ask ourselves, is Elon Musk the right person for this job? I don't know, but we did ask Stephen. I think the issue that that we have, and I think the issue that, that Elon is now faced with is Twitter is a product, yes, but it's much more than a, a product. It's, uh, it's a public sphere, it's public conversation, and it's a, a platform of, of interconnected relationships. Um, and that's, I think, we're, what we're seeing this play out now. Elon's brought a product mindset to it. Um, and it isn't a product. It's very, very, it's something very much more complex. So it's interesting because Stephen alluded to the fact that Elon's strategy is really, really confusing. For example, he tweeted out and he suggested a $20 verification fee, which obviously everyone rebelled against. And, and instead of going back to his, his board or his marketing department and saying, you know, what do we think? He just went back and replied, how about $8? Now, it just felt that he just pulled that figure from, well, you know where he might have pulled it from. And he also seems to be trolling his own users on Twitter. So we have to ask, what is the potential impact on Twitter, given Musk's quite strange approach to things? I, I don't think he's got a plan at the moment, I think. And I don't understand what he's trying to do because he's paid a lot of money for this asset and immediately uh, immediately announced uh, a reduction in the staff. And you've said it yourself, half. That's dramatic. Um you know it's br absolutely brutal um and will have created all sorts of chaos internally within the organization frankly i'm surprised the platform's still up and that's without even thinking about the emotional and and, and human cost it can't possibly be right in any in any set of circumstances i think you've got an individual here in elon musk who's brought bought twitter and hasn't got a plan um and um you know gut reaction cut, cut costs um, which is what you saw him do. I mean, you know, I could I could understand it if he'd come out uh, come out with some sort of, of plan. And we were talking about the stripe um, the the stripe layoffs um, as well. You know, very different situation in that they uh, they announced what was happening with the company, took full responsibility, and set out a very clear strategy for uh, for for what was happening in. We've said it in in the case of Twitter, it's an absolute shit show. No one knows what's going on. The customers don't know what's going on. The sorry, advertisers don't know what's going on, and they're leaving. The users don't know what's going on. They're just you know, in the extreme, they're being trolled by um, by Musk himself. Um, and goodness knows how this the anyone that's employed by the organisation must feel. It as as we say, it must be absolute chaos. So that was Stephen's thoughts. So we asked Candice, who actually had worked at Twitter before, what she thought. <laughs> um, it's heartbreaking, uh, to be completely honest with you. Uh, Twitter has a very magical culture. Um, uh, it's like I said, it's very hard to explain. And uh, Elon Musk started uh, the talk about purchasing the company like literally a week after I left and being at Twitter is challenging enough because it's constantly in the spotlight. Um, the employees, therefore, are kind of also constantly in the spotlight, even though they're not directly. Um, when your company is being talked about constantly in the news, 
it, there's a certain pressure that goes along with that. And um, the internal comms team, uh, God bless them uh, at, at Twitter, they know how to handle a crisis like no other. Um, if any anyone out there needs great crisis communication internal managers, uh, just hit me up. I will tell you the names and, and they could easily fit in, I think, in any organization. But um, just seeing how much uncertainty the employees were put under for the longest period of time of, is this deal going to happen? Is it not going to happen? We also had a change of leadership from Jack Parag um, shortly thereafter, and you barely had any chance to even try to understand Parag's leadership style. There were changes in the C-suite. Uh, it just put a ton of uncertainty, I think, in a lot of Twitter employees. And I'm, I'm like proud of of those who stuck it out all the way until the purchase happened, you know, a couple of weeks ago. Um, but at the same point, worry about their well-being and how much stress they've undergone. Um, I, I can't imagine how difficult it is to be productive and actually function to your fullest capacity when there's just this constant circus going around in the background <laughs> and being asked about it too. Because for me, i I left Twitter maybe seven, eight months ago, and all of my coworkers still ask me about it as if I worked there. Um, and so not only are you thinking about it at work, every person you know is asking you, what's it like? How are things going? And you can't escape it. I think Kenneth brings up a really good point there. And you know, there's, there's been so much lead up as I'll kind of have talked us through the time timeline. It's it's put so much pressure on people and a lot of uncertainty for the longest of time. So that's kind of the, the business viewpoint in a nutshell. And I think it kind of can be summarized by the point that commercially, no one's really arguing with the decisions that these massive tech companies have had to make. But how they went about it does leave some some room for for opinion um so let's move on to people and i think before we can start to understand the shifts and changes that people at twitter in particular have been through it's important to understand how things were so here's dr candace schaefer as we've said the former global head of employee wellness at twitter and she's going to explain um, so uh, previously, uh, they did not have anyone in that role, um, or at least for a while. And so my responsibility was to build uh, an overall employee well-being program from the ground up, uh, which meant kind of looking at the different pillars of well-being and really prioritizing as to what should be uh, the most pressing given the issues that are happening with the workforce. So I joined in 2019 and I had about a nine month head start before the pandemic happened. Uh, and then, um, you know, my big focus being a, a mental health practitioner is, is I'm not going to lie, it's on mental health. Um, and when I was at Facebook, I just learned so much about burnout and um, why this is such a pervasive problem in tech and you know, around, uh, you know, the workforce in general, it's not just in tech, but particularly uh, with the younger uh, generations that are putting a lot of their time and energy into work um, and, and using it as their sole uh, source of fulfillment uh, can really burn out easily. And so um, I put a lot of focus around burnout prevention and also building community. Uh, so in a remote workforce, it can be really challenging to feel connected to other people. Um, and uh, you don't have the office, and particularly during the pandemic, we didn't have an office either. Uh, and so how do we build connections with one another that we would normally get in the office? And um, so I created a, a, a peer support program. Uh, we also called it a mental health allyship program where people could just learn the basics of listening. It seems like a foreign concept, but uh, listening is actually really hard. Uh, and uh, just learning to hold a space for somebody. And um, so after, after that launched, it was an incredibly successful um, initiative. We had um, in a company of maybe 5,000 employees, we had 500 trained um, in that those basics of listening and uh, continued on. Uh, even after I left. And of course, we also asked Dr. Candice about the culture at Twitter when she was there. 
it is an amazing culture uh the the tweets that you see on twitter from people who are just uh uh let go from twitter do not lie um about the culture um i miss it very much and and really i, I wish there was an easy way to explain the culture but it's just very much collegial um everyone's excited about the platform um and really uh feeds off of each other's vibes. Uh, and I particularly was excited about Twitter, um, just given the fact that um, while I was interviewing, uh, Jack Dorsey wanted to interview me. Um, for a CEO of a company as large as Twitter, I, at the time I was like a nervous wreck. And um, unfortunately we never got uh, that, that interview scheduled because he is a very busy guy. Um, but the fact that the CEO has his own sense of mission and really wants uh, wellness to be an important part of the culture at Twitter was really important to me. And that's something that I learned previously uh, at Facebook. That was something I was looking for in a new role. Mm -hmm. So to flip this slightly, I mean, let's put this critical lens on. Given what we know about what, let's be honest, seems unsustainable rapid growth of these massive tech companies, added in with the current economic climate, which we actually talked a lot about on our last episode, if you haven't checked that out, do. Um, so given those two factors, should people really be surprised if they lose their jobs in tech? I asked Alan. Uh, I mean, definitely not in, in capitalist uh, corporate uh, America, right? Um, I think just from an employee, employee protection perspective, I feel Europe is a lot more protective of their employees than, than the US. Um, uh, culturally as well, um, and uh, that that comes with uh, with I mean, the growth in the U.S. is also generally higher and faster and more reactive when it starts happening. So you you're gonna have some, there's there's when there's a high returns, you're always gonna assume high risks. So it's just the the nature of the beast. So if you I mean I have spoken to a bunch of my American friends and colleagues or uh, former colleagues, and they are happy to accept that one Friday they show up and they get fired. They, that is the nature of the beast. Um, but the, the bit that really worries me about all these things, and I keep coming back to it as I, as you probably realize, is, is not the fact that they are having to fire people. It is the fact that it, it is just about how they go about doing it. So again, we're coming back to how it's done. So what is the right way to lay people off from a business and people perspective? Let's hear from Stephen. So let's not make any mistake, right? Uh, layoffs within any organization are absolutely brutal. It's a sort of bereavement um, on a on a corporate scale. And and um, it's the, the emotional cost is really high. You know, we, we bring our whole selves to work. We invest, you know, increasingly. Uh, in uh, our whole selves and our professional lives uh, and when that's suddenly and abruptly brought to an end out of our control then um th then it's brutal and it is you know it is a bereavement process absolutely is um now if you look at the two ways that the, these similar situations have, have been handled uh, in the case of stripe um empathetically um via a memo where the the founders donors took total responsibility for for the situation although they contextualized it in in terms of the market there but they took full responsibility for overhiring um uh, as a result of the the boom we saw during covid the e-commerce boom uh and uh, they explained the rationale for what they were doing um you know, you look at the and the statement's very human. It's very, very empathetic. So, in in terms of you know handling a, a, an awful, truly awful situation uh, as best you can, I, I think that's a you know an example of of good practice. Uh, in the case of the the Twitter statement, statement was written you know in a mix of language in the sometimes in the third person it was signed off by twitter it was just impersonal didn't explain what was happening it seems arbitrary what musk is doing and yes while it did seem brutal to let so many people go at once alan does have an opinion on this when you when you know you're getting into a crisis always assume the worst and do not do 
firing of staff every three months to survive the crisis. Take a big cut upfront, so so that you bring the bring the um the the cost base of the organization to a very lean um uh, and and in some sense mean level, so that from there you can start working upwards. Um, and the morale of who are staying in the organization is not. Yeah, it's not too poor because they know the worst is behind them. Mm-hmm. Whereas if you if you do five percent today, five percent in three months time, and another five percent uh, in six months time, that is not healthy for anyone. And that that was a, a constant uh, insight I kept getting from CEOs who've done this in the past. One of the things that I really noticed from talking to our guests this week, and one thing that really united people in their opinion on how things should be done, is really about making sure that it's done with transparency and support. So let's hear from Alan first. And be honest with yourself and with your organization, saying it's tough times. Uh, We have to survive. This is the way we think is the best for the organization to survive. And how can we help you? What are the things that you will need? You probably will find 1% of the um, audience that you're planning to fire to be extremely vulnerable. So what do you do to do the ex- extra mile to protect them, to give them the additional cushion? So those were the points that really came through in my conversations with those CEOs. And I think where a lot of, you know, that if you look at social media and, and people at Twitter who have been impacted, either people who are staying or people who have left, you know, there's, there's understandable outrage because of the lack of communication from the leadership team. The fact that the comms were signed by Twitter rather than a, a specific person. Um, and I think this is something quite shocking from, from Dr. Candice about communications at Twitter. I say this also, I still have many t- colleagues at Twitter. Um, they've received no communication from leadership whatsoever um, still <laughs> to this point. Um, and so... And the emails that said, you know, we're going to be laying off um, were unsigned. Like they, there was no one, no one person attached to that email. It's just Twitter. So here's a question then. If employees know it's coming, if they know they're going to get laid off, from a psychological point of view, what difference does it make a more human-centered approach? Like, why do we need empathy if really the bottom line is, I'm so sorry, you've not got a job? I think it's a really good question now, particularly people at Twitter who have been through this roller coaster since April this year, more than six months. They knew it was coming, right? They knew this was a very real possibility that redundancies could happen. The scale of them, maybe not, but certainly the possibility. But again, I think it comes back down to how you go about it. People can be logical. People have business brains. They know commercially something has to change. But that doesn't mean we we have to go about it in a purely business and commercial way. We can show empathy. We can take a human approach. Let's hear from Candice again. A, you express that empathy to your your employees who may be suffering job losses just because you're letting them go doesn't mean you can't treat them like a human being and i think that's the biggest thing that i have noticed from not just layoffs with twitter but with a lot of different companies over the past couple of years is um you're really taking the human dignity out of it by treating all of these people like they're a number uh, or just you know a being that's works for you rather than an actual person who has a family um, or doesn't, you know, have enough savings left in, in, in their bank account to make sure that they're going to get through to whatever the next step is. Um, and so being considerate and being empathetic is really about giving your employees the benefit of the doubt that they will understand but you also work with them to make sure that they have enough time so that they can put everything that they need to do um, to get their life in order so that their world doesn't come crashing down completely. And as we said, you know, Twitter isn't the only tech company to be really feeling it at the moment in terms of this economic pressure. Um, But, you know, there's a right way to go about it and arguably a wrong way to go about it. So let's compare Twitter and Stripe and let's see what Stephen thinks. So I think, 
so Al, the, the other thing we should say is that the complete the comms team across the board within Twitter was also fired. So, you know, he's also he's also shown that uh uh he doesn't really he's not really that interested in engaging with the communities around Twitter, whether they be advertisers or or the media or or users. So again, that lens, that engineering lens. Um that's not to say, you know, um that's not to say uh, engineers don't have human characteristics. Absolutely, they do. But he's very much approaching this from a product problem, as a pro- as opposed to a human relationship, uh, a human relationship problem. I think you know, in the, in the context of of what what does good look like? I think you look to the Stripe, um, you look to the way that Stripe managed this this process. Um, very clearly setting out in a memo to staff there's also the process just the process that of, of handling how someone leaves an organization you know and it's it's you, you want wherever possible to create good exits for people um so for all it's a really awful um situation you know you, you you can create good endings and i think that's really really important for closure uh for, for individuals closure and again in the case of the stripe situation you know the promising or they made the, the commitment of of um additional payments and support for staff that are leaving the company uh in terms of Twitter, the you know you 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 got informed by an email to your personal account. The next thing you knew, all your systems were shut down, uh, and and that's it. And that's that's absolutely brutal from a human, just a very human point of view. Okay, so we've covered the business side of things and how the how that's impacted the business. We've just talked about the people side of things and how it impacts the people. Let's talk about the brand. What's really confusing me is how Elon's approach is going to affect both his own brand, because he does have a brand with, obviously, SpaceX and Tesla. He's got his own brand, and then how it's going to affect Twitter's. So we asked Alan what he thought. See, it's one thing is about Elon Musk, but in general, I think what's starting to see, uh, what, what we're starting to see generally is a very, I don't know, um, cringe-worthy culture from some of these big billionaires is talking things about um, situations and crisis that could affect a lot of people so openly on Twitter. Um, like firing 75% of Twitter staff should never be discussed on Twitter. Um, just imagine the amount of emotional turmoil they would have gone, gone through. Um, again, we see that a lot in crypto markets, day in and day out, where really immature, that's heights of immaturity. You, you've got billions under, uh, billions that you're managing as, as a CEO, and you have to show some level of responsibility to the people who've, who've trusted you to look after that cash. The same thing applies to Elon Musk as well. $54 billion, it's not just his... By affecting his workforce, he's also affecting his shareholders in some sense because who's going to be trusting the organization to, to, to go and apply for a job there even if they were hiring in the future? Uh, if that is the that is the kind of culture that he's trying to build, there will be a few people whom he can pay really high salaries to hire, but they still need the foot soldiers to get the job done. So I think that he's, he's probably hurt himself as much as he's hurt um, his staff, uh, but his staff are going to feel, who particularly been affected by the fire drill, um, are going to be affected more in the short term and medium term than him. But um, I, I used to have very high respect for the man. Um, and then it's just that some of these, these folks, when they get to a point of either uh, uh, power or money or whatever, they just lose sense of empathy. They just lose common sense. Whatever it 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 uh, it takes to do the right things the right way, um, I think they they just don't see it. I guess, um, and yeah, feeling that that sense of in in infallible is that the word? I don't know. Just just kind of lost for words. Um, but how did he go about doing it? Cringeworthy the way the way he's gone gone about doing it. I am quickly interrupting this phenomenal podcast to recommend another phenomenal podcast. 
Nudge. We love Nudge, hosted by Phil Agnew, a true gent. It is, of course, brought to you by the HubSpot Podcast Network, the audio destination for business professionals. But that is not the only reason we're recommending it, is it, Al? No, it's not. No, we've recommended it to lots of people. If you look at any of our YouTube comments, it won't take you long, there's about 20 of them, <laughs> then you'll see that we recommend Phil uh, to anyone who likes our pod. Well, on Nudge, you're going to learn simple evidence-backed tips. It's going to help you kick bad habits, get a raise, and grow a business. Oh, and it's the UK's fastest growing business podcast. For now. For now, Phil, we're coming for you, buddy. <laughs> if you loved hearing Rory Sutherland from Ogilvy on our show back in episode 83, then Phil's latest episode has Rory on again talking about McDonald's, smoking, and why the pension system is broken. I suppose we should say that actually Rory's been on a couple of times on to nudge. It's not that uh, Phil's seen what we've done and gone, I'll have Rory. So I think it's important yeah, for no, us to Yeah, no, we say copied. That. We copied Phil. Anyway, listen to Nudge wherever you get your podcasts. And, and obviously we need to speak to the king of PR, Stephen Waddington. So this is what Stephen had to say. What Musk is doing in terms of, you know, on the one hand, he's making statements about brand safety being really important and trust and confidence on the platform being really important. But then, you know, firing anybody of, Getting rid of the, the 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 teams that are responsible for for uh, for moderation, uh, and you know it just doesn't make sense. So you've got two things: you've got a situation really badly handled, but then also on top of that, the sort of arbitrary nature of of what's been done. And I think I think Musk is coming out of this as a as I say as a as a product engineer uh, and just hasn't considered the human aspect at all. So I think the consensus is 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 fairly there in that Elon Musk did not deal with this in a very good way. So you have to ask yourself, is this just going to be a little dent in Elon's crown? Is it going to be the thing that topples him? Or is he the entrepreneurial genius that will figure it all out? I ask Candice. Uh, I think it's a mix of both. Um, I mean, clearly he's done some things right. Uh, Tesla is a great example. And now, at least in the United States, every car company is trying to figure out how to go electric. Um, so he's done something right there. Um, but what I think is the issue is he may have thought that taking over Twitter was a lot easier than it actually is. Um, I think people look at social media companies and think that it's an easy business to run. Um, and it's very, very, very complicated. Um, and so with something that's particularly like content moderation, um, I was laughing because uh, Elon Musk had tweeted that uh, Twitter is going to be the source of truth. That's what we will allow on this platform. And Jack Dorsey immediately tweeted back to him, the source of truth to whom? Uh, because who determines what is the facts, what is the truth, uh, is the biggest question when it comes to uh, getting misinformation off of the platform. Uh, and it is one of the most complicated problems I've ever seen uh, in tech. So I think he, he probably came into this a little naively that it was gonna be an easy fix uh, to make it profitable. Uh, when just from a business perspective, it's a lot more complicated than that. Now, content moderation on the platform is a big, big issue. It's something that's been all in the press. It's something that our experts all all picked up on and talked about. Um, so I think it's really important now where we take a moment just to see what our experts think about content moderation and the impact that can have. Let's speak to Alan first. The challenge that they're going to have, and I think um, I'm not a big fan of Mark uh, Zuckerberg, uh, never been one, uh, but one thing that resonates with me that he he mentioned was running a social media platform is like running a country. You can never completely eradicate crime in, 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 in a country, right? You can have, you will always have pockets of crime from time to time. So if, if there are um, incidents on the social media platform um, through some kind of opinion sharing or whatever, which actually kind of is an outlier. It could be political, it could be a terrorist uh, organization doing something. There is only so much they can do to balance kind of um, getting that out and balancing that with free speech. 
Um, so that that kind of balance to achieve that balance, it's it's extremely hard for social media platforms to do that and bringing that moderation. And I think that is probably a gray area. I don't think Musk is quite. Um, I don't think he's getting it because he's. I've I've always seen him as quite a binary guy. Uh, when you push binary guys to operate in shades of gray, they they often struggle. So how he handles the moderation around Twitter is going to be probably the the the, the uh, make or break moment for Twitter, I guess, in the long run. So what I loved about talking to Dr. Candice about is that her background um, as an employee wellness expert actually stemmed from content moderation. So she used to work with a lot of people, a lot of employees um, and design programs to help them deal with the sheer trauma uh, that can come up of moderating this type of content. Um, she has something really interesting to say about um, any social media platform being like a digital world. So, I mean, since I'm not in Twitter anymore, I don't know the exact numbers, but um, the line that I've read for Twitter has been content moderation. Uh, people who engage in content moderation were only reduced by 15% uh, in contrast to, you know, the company as a whole was 60%. Uh, and I don't know what the, what the numbers are on Facebook yet. I'm sure we'll find out. Um, but what's also important to to know is that many, uh, almost every company that uh, owns a social media platform, whether that's TikTok, Twitter, Facebook, um, all of them use third-party vendors um, and outsource a lot of that content moderation to other companies. Uh, so it may not even necessarily be a direct impact depending on if they choose to keep funding these vendors. Um, but uh, sometimes uh, there's there's more content moderation going on on the outside of the company uh, with uh, another employer than there is on the inside. And what does that mean for, for users, do you think, users of Twitter, of, of Facebook? Will, will we see a difference as, as users of the platforms? Um, you may, uh, and again, it just depends on how many, um, people they've cut, but also what policies they're continuing to enforce. Um, and, and the way I try to explain it, uh, for, for people who are unfamiliar with content moderation, uh, you got to imagine that a social media platform is kind of like a digital world. You have citizens running around yelling things and and doing you know living their daily lives and we have policemen on that uh, on that platform and in that digital world and uh above that you have detectives you have people that are doing deep dives on serious criminal activity going on on the platform who then eventually pass over uh that information to law enforcement in the real world uh and then you have politicians uh, in that digital world, people who create the policies that determine whether or not someone is violating terms of service agreement. And um, politicians ultimately determine what laws are being broken and when. So if the policies change, the uh, platform may or may not become less or more safe. Uh, and if you eliminate the, the detective level, which is usually what um, companies like Facebook and Twitter have internally, uh, you may see more um, egregious crimes uh, being let go. Um, um, talking like terrorism, um, child sex trafficking, like pretty, pretty horrible um, uh, criminal activity going on there. Uh, and then our, our first level policemen, uh, which is mostly the outsourced workers that you uh, would see, um, they will probably be less affected. Uh, so it, it really depends on where they're going to be making cuts, but it is very possible that you will see more of a dumpster fire. And this is part of the story that really has been developing as we've been prepping this episode. Um, so, you know, we we had the guy who was Twitter's head of safety and integrity at Twitter, a gentleman called Yol Roth. On the 4th of November, he tweeted, 
Quote, here are the facts about where Twitter's trust and safety and moderation capacity stands today. Our core moderation capabilities remain in place. Yesterday's reduction in force affected approximately 15% of our trust and safety organization, as opposed to approximately 50% of cuts company-wide. And yet, a few days later, Mr. Roth resigned. So according to Elon Musk, the plan is to use AI to help with content moderation. But will this be effective? Let's see what Candace thinks. The idea that, you know, AI is going to replace the human content moderator, I don't think is realistic, just given how violations change over time um, and policies change over time. Uh, people figure out new ways uh, to uh, violate the terms of service that AI cannot keep up with. Um, and so we're constantly going to need human uh, content moderators. We just may need less of them. So the cleaning seems to be a big threat to the brand of Twitter. Now it's gone private. Let's find out from Candice what she thinks as an ex-insider. Just simply because there's no accountability uh, to the shareholders. Uh, shareholders can be a good thing because uh, they have to know what's going on. They have a right to know what's going on. Um, but the less transparent you have to be when you take a company private, um, there's there's no one you have to uh, say yes or no to. It's it's just the person who owns the company, in this case, Elon Musk, and what he says goes. We also asked Alan and Stephen what advice they would give to Elon. Very simply, make your decisions based on data. It doesn't matter how cruel it is, but when you execute them, let others execute them. You've you've been seen as a ruthless leader. Has you have absolutely no empathy. Just delegate that task. Hire someone to do it with a lot more empathy. That is probably the one rule of thumb I would I would give him. He is a product design genius. Um, you know, um, he risks though eroding all the value in his that he's created in all these other organizations because of the way he's managing this this process now the best thing he could do is bring someone in as a leader um to the to the organization who operationally understands the public sphere aspect the public conversation aspect of, of twitter the fact that it is a platform of human relationships and it it isn't a product he should probably also stop insulting the users of the platform and the advertisers of, of the platform um because that's gonna that's gonna create a um an, an absolute backlash and and you know critically he needs a strategy for what he's doing here and it, you know he came uh came in with this grand idea of of um free speech and opening up twitter to to free speech well that's all well and good but um, you you know you have to have moderation on on a platform if you're going to create safe spaces for humans and brands to to advertise. So we've talked about the business, we've talked about the people, we've talked about the brand. We have to ask ourselves what's next, and who knows, it has been quite a whirlwind already. Um, but I mean, let's let's talk about something maybe a little bit more positive, perhaps. We know Twitter isn't the only tech company that's in this position at the moment. As we've said, Stripe also laid off about 14% of their employees. So will the approach that Stripe took have a more positive impact on the people that remain in the business? And what does that mean for their culture? Let's hear from Alan. So this again comes from an anecdotal evidence that I gathered during my uh, interviews. The moment you do the ripping of the plaster exercise, you're basically sending a message to the people who remain. Um, that uh, we've reduced our cost base, which means our runway has increased to three years or four years or whatever, which will easily see us through the crisis that we are in today. Um, and the markets are probably going to turn around in six to nine and 12 months time. So one of the things I, I, I have written in the book is how the CEO addresses the remainers um, and, and how they go about telling them or, or giving them the comfort that we can now start uh, innovating and and one of the things that uh, I think it was it was a startup a CEO from India who mentioned that um, as soon as we ripped off the plaster um, and 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 the teams knew that uh, they are kind of in some sense out of danger um, they started being a lot more proactive and more innovative uh, because they knew that um, uh, that could be new directions the firm can take because there's a lot more capital available um, of course not like spending crazily 
but there they had the mind space uh, to 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 kind of un almost unleash themselves in more creative ways uh, within the organization um i think that because a lot of bureaucracy would have been removed in the organization by just shedding fat in some sense um so i think that's that that was a that was a really good insight i got um, through the process uh yeah so when you when you uh, kind of get more leaner and meaner and more efficient through crisis it's a good thing for the organization in general both from a pnl perspective um but also from um from um employees who remain in the organization um they they feel that they've done something right to stay or to be part of the um people who've been kept in the organization despite the crisis and it only helps them in some sense so Alan's clearly saying that this is a big opportunity. There's a pivot, there's a turnaround, there's a period of testing. Um, you've got a product genius at the helm. But let's see if Candice thinks the same thing. I don't know, to be honest. Um, I think Facebook has gone through such a metamorphosis. Um, no pun intended. Uh, <laughs> meta. Uh, but uh, Twitter, I don't. I, I am afraid Twitter will not recover from this. Uh, this is so decimating um for what's been happening over the past year and um you know companies like google i think seem relatively stable but you just never know they change over time and the one thing i've noticed with tech is most companies like to keep this mentality that we're a startup that we have this fun atmosphere where people are really working together and doing something that's revolutionary. And we are a flat organization uh, and anyone can talk to anybody. And these companies outgrow being a startup very quickly um, with the amount of success that they keep. Um, but it it's almost an illusion to the employees as well that, uh, an organization is flat and that you're at a startup because this is a a, a corporate business now um there will have to be cuts there will have to be things that are done from a budgetary perspective um and it can be hard to absorb that and i think a lot of people will romanticize being a startup i remember being at facebook and they're saying oh we're a startup i'm like we're not a startup <laughs> if we're past ipo you know we're really not a startup but People like to keep that mentality that we are. So what is it about Twitter then? Because you said you, you're worried that Twitter won't recover. What makes the situation with Twitter different than that to that with Stripe and, and Meta with Facebook? It, it, it was the cut of how many people were let go. Um, the culture is, I think, the one thing Twitter had. Like Twitter was not necessarily the most profitable um and that was okay i think for a lot of people um working at twitter because they liked the people uh, there was something there uh with the culture uh uniquely and when you cut half of the workforce and then now you know i'm seeing people who are just leaving like they don't want to be a part of it if this many of their colleagues have left uh and so i don't know how many people are going to remain to keep the original culture and now that it's a completely private company, there's going to be less transparency going on as to what is happening in the company. And usually that, I would say, is probably not a good thing for um, employees. Well, I feel like we've covered some ground there, Al. Mm -hmm. Goodness, there, there is a lot there. And I think what we're going to do we're gonna we're gonna pause this. We're gonna release the rest of it in uh, part two, which will release as a bonus episode in the next couple of days, where we will come back to our guests. And I feel like we've kind of done kind of where we've been. So I think we'll really focus on what's left for Twitter, particularly the people who are who are still there, what it means for them. Um, in terms of business leaders, what we can learn from this, if unfortunately you are considering layoffs, how you can approach this in a way that is human-centered and will protect the well-being of your employees. Um, and then I, I guess just finally, some support for people who have been impacted by redundancy. My heart genuinely goes out to you. I was made redundant in 2015. It, it still gives me shivers when I think back to it. So we will definitely be talking through some practical tips some psychological tips and, and everything you need to get back on your feet and, and get back out there. 
Definitely. And so we'll hear more from our three guests. The first one, Stephen Waddington, the PR expert, who's a visiting professor of PR. He's a non-exec director. And you can find him on Twitter at twitter.com forward slash wads, W-A-D-D-S. Although maybe not for much longer. There, uh, he has been talking about moving to the other platform. We're also going to speak again to Alan Krishnakumar, who is the author of Restartup, A Founder's Guide to Crisis Navigation. You can also find Alan on Twitter at 0XARUNK. And finally, we're going to go back to Dr. Candice Schaefer, um, who is that clinical psychologist and also the ex-global head of employee wellness at Twitter, who's got so many juicy stories about what it's like to work at Twitter. So if you haven't subscribed yet, click that subscribe button because you're in the next episode, part two of this, will pop straight into your fancy little podcast app without you having to do anything. Uh, got any questions? Got any thoughts? Find us on social media, Truth Lies Work. Just search for that or go to truthliesandwork.com. And while you're looking for us, look for uh, Dr. Schaefer at the same time, at Dr. Schaefer on Twitter. But we'll leave all the links to everyone's socials in the show notes. See you next time. Bye.